Welcome to the JFI's Weekly Choosing Up podcast with author and therapist, Ilana Kendall, and me, your host, Ellie Bass. Each week, we explore how to get into a Choosing Up headspace using insights from my book of the same name, as well as Jewish wisdom, psychology, and more. Join us now for this week's episode. Are you ready to choose up? I was, uh, I was talking with a colleague of mine in New Jersey, a psychologist, and she gave me a term this week that I'm loving, the Corona Coaster. We are so perfect. <laughs> riding the Corona Coaster. And one of the reasons I love it, we talk about stories here. We talk about metaphors. I think actually a few weeks ago, we talked about roller coasters and a story about, that I shared about kind of digging my fingernails into uh, the, 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 that bar on a roller coaster and really resisting the experience. The Corona Coaster, I love because it gives us a visual and a visceral sense of what it is to have ups and downs. And, and if there are ups and downs, there's, there's no one way to be. There's no one way to be on a roller coaster. Some people love roller coasters. Some people hate roller coasters. Some people have a love-hate relationship with roller coasters. And that's perhaps what, what we need to know right now, which is that there is no one place or one way to be experiencing wherever we are. I know last week we talked about an example. I shared a story, a friend of mine had reached out to me. She was having a really hard time. And I think most of you were with us last week just to, to jog our memory. The kind of presenting problem was that she had worked on herself to have a certain kind of disposition to not lose her temper, to create a certain uh, vibe in her home, to do some internal work. And she was being highly triggered by what is going on, accumulation of stresses. And we talked about some tools and strategies that she and really all of us can use to self-regulate, to be in more of a space and behave in more of a way that is aligned with who she wanted to be. And someone commented, they asked a question after, and by the way, I love the questions. We love the feedback. We want this to be that kind of an ongoing and iterative conversation. And so the question was, why can't she just say to her kids, I'm having a hard time. I'm struggling. This isn't about you. And I thought that was a really important question and, and something that I wanted to address this week, which is our strategy that we suggested did not preclude the importance of also naming that and modeling, modeling for the people around us that actually it's okay to have a hard time. And what powerful, what a powerful message it is to be able to say, I'm struggling and this isn't about you because most of us walk around thinking everything is about us. So what helpful information, first of all, that it's not about us and even more importantly, what helpful information to be able to articulate, I'm struggling. That's part of the human experience. That's part of the journey in life that is certainly part of the Corona coaster. And one of the reasons I think that, you know, I, I love that so much is it's permission. It's permission to be human. I, I once was in a group of women. We had been learning together for some time and working on character development and working on ourselves. And one of the women was a very developed, holy person. And really, you know, with someone I looked up to and we had a teacher with us and she asked the teacher at one point, you know, 
I, I've been working on all of this and I've been implementing these tools and, and I see some changes, but I still, I have moments when, when I falter, I have moments when I fall back into old patterns, when I don't feel so connected, I don't have that clarity. And I remember the teacher saying, Mazel Tov, you're human. And what a relief. What a relief just to realize that this is part of the map of being a human being. When, when I was writing my book when, and, and talking to people about the process and talking about the choosing up message, one of the things that, that someone said to me once was, you know, it seems like it's just easy for you to find the good. Like it's just easy for you to find the meaning. And, and can I tell you, Ellie, like it gave me a really good laugh, like a really good belly laugh, because if you could only know how much work it is and, and that's the piece that I, I always try to share in my teaching and my writing, which is this is not, you know, I, I woke up with rose-colored rose glasses, right? I did not come out of the womb with, with pink glasses to, to see the world. It's rather through the struggle, it's through the very human experience that we look for ways and we cultivate these capacities to find that way up, to find our choice point. So if we circle back to this Corona coaster and we, we come back to this question, whenever we build tools or strategies, whenever we do this work, we aren't doing this from a place of, I should be feeling differently, right? There is something wrong with me. I, I want to give my kids or myself the message that I, I you know, better get back with the program folks here, but rather we always start from the place of recognizing, okay, this is part of my human experience. Mm. And, and I think framing it as the Corona coaster is a relief because, you know, if you are in a car and you are swerving left and right, it can be terrifying because that's not how a car is supposed to drive. You know, if you've ever skidded out of control off the road on ice, that's a terrifying experience. If you're on a roller coaster, even if you don't like it, you have a frame of reference, you have a cognitive container that tells you, okay, this is still what's supposed to be happening, even if I'm not enjoying all of it. And so that framework is likewise important for us now to normalize ups and downs to normalize the times that we are not feeling okay now that's really nice and as we talk every week you know what's going on with the nervous system right so if we're in fight or flight and we think there's something terribly wrong even with that reaction that's just going to amp things up for us so if we feel a little bit of relief if you're even noticing if you know right now as we're talking if you check in with your body and you think about even one hard day you had this week or if you're having a hard moment right now and you think oh, okay, like this is actually okay. There's nothing wrong here. You know, we're sitting here, we're, we're hopefully getting inspired. And yet part of getting inspired is acknowledging we're not always going to be inspired. Yeah, I, and, love the, I love the Corona coaster analogy because, so first of all, I keep thinking like if this really was a roller coaster, it'd be one of those ones where it's completely in the dark and your feet are hanging like in the air. So you have zero sense of proprioception. And it's like a roller coaster that has been going on for almost three months now. So like, it's like you're, you're just Enough already down with no sense of where the next twist and turn is yes. gonna be. Um, and then it's like someone puts you on that roller coaster and says, okay, now do your job, help your kids do their school, uh, make sure everybody's eating, 
don't be afraid, you know, like while you're on, you know, in pitch dark with your feet off the ground going on a three month long roller coaster. So it's a really, it's a great analogy because yeah, not, no one is going to be able to function at peak perfection while you're in the dark on a roller coaster. And I think that really gives so much permission to be experimental and to make mistakes and, and then to just say, okay, I'm, I'm on the coaster, but if you forget you're on the coaster, then it's really challenging. Yeah. And that's, I think sometimes what happens is we forget we're on a roller coaster or we have, as you say, these high expectations of ourselves, of, of who we're going to be while we don't know what's coming next. And so if we can just even normalize that and bring some language to that, then we come back into that place of choice, right? Who are we going to be even on the roller coaster? And, and so this, if we come back to this question, you know, why, why do we name what's going on? So certainly we are modeling for the people around us. And as, as we know, the language that we use most powerfully affects ourselves. And, you know, I guess it's no surprise uh, when I think about it, although I ended up working as a therapist and, and writing and teaching that my one, I, I switched my major many times in undergrad. That, that's trivia for another day, but one of my majors was in linguistics. And I'm always fascinated by the way that we use metaphor. You know, if we even think about it with Corona, we have been talking about this battle and, and battle metaphors come up all over the place. And there's really interesting discourse around how this comes up around disease, illness, cancer, you know, whether you're fighting against it and, and whether you're winning and all of these different metaphors shape how we are relating, not just to the world, but really to ourselves. And so if we think about being conscious then of the language, we, when we think about the choosing out message, which is that we get to become active narrators in our lives, it actually becomes a pretty exciting place of awareness. Uh, there's, there's new research out of UCLA, which talks about how powerful it is as soon as we name the emotion, the frontal lobes come back online. As soon as we put a word to it, we actually see neurological shifts. And so as I was thinking about this, how important it is not just to, to be doing active work on ourselves, not just to be using some of these strategies, but also to be naming what's going on and identifying it and, and not to be afraid to be in that struggle, to be having that hard day and to role model that. I was, I was reminded of a story in the book. So I, I wanted to read it to you today. Um, and, and use that as maybe a little bit of a jumping off point for us to think about how we can have actually fun while we are narrating the Corona Coaster. So this is from a, a few years back, uh, but it was, it was on a Friday, so, so here we go. There are some moments that seem as if they are happening in slow motion. They are rarely the times we wish would linger. Achingly long afternoons, drawn out nights, or times we see something falling as it happens, as was the case on a Friday afternoon. I was on edge. Making my way around the kitchen, I couldn't help but notice my inner critic in good form. In addition to being irritated, I was berating myself for being in a bad mood. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit more cranky than usual today, I said to my daughter. I guess the hope was that by naming and admitting my struggle, I would somehow tame the tired and snappy beast within. 
I continued, anyway, I just wanted to say that. I'm trying my best. What I've edited out so far was that all of this was relayed as I was trying to prep food and make myself a coffee. This is where the slow motion effect starts. The echo of my words, trying my best, lingered in the air as I reached for my freshly made coffee. Somewhere between extending my hand and grasping that cup, the reel comes to a near halt. Okay, can you picture this? You see it unfolding, frazzled woman, mid-afternoon, almost making it to that hot java until she doesn't. Cup drops, coffee splashes, everywhere. Floor, counter, and everything in between. Then it shifts out of slow motion, and in a split second, the film is once again moving at high speed, as is the narrow window of reaction time. I suppose the test of saying that we're trying our best is when we're given the chance to prove it. I looked over at the witness to my coffee fumble. Scrambling for towels, taking in a deep breath, I remarked, I guess this is today's test. As my daughter and I mopped, cleaned, and muttered, I began to narrate the play-by-play. And mommy swoops in with paper towels, daughter assists with extra rags, coffee is dribbling down the counter, but ladies and gentlemen, we won't be discouraged. We started to laugh. Even as I discovered untold surfaces of coffee puddles, I kept up the running commentary. We giggled at the absurdity of it all. Somehow putting words to the incident and externalizing the struggle shifted the experience. We became co-conspirators in our reaction, forming a new narrative. Notice I didn't say we created a story we loved or were excited about. I'd rather not have spent that time mopping up the coffee I was craving, but isn't that how it goes with most of the messy moments in life? We can't avoid stress and heartbreak, but we can choose the story we tell about it. I am always stressed can become I am feeling stressed right now. Instead of saying bad things always happen to me, we can reflect I have had a lot of pain. I'm learning to live with my challenges. These tiny tweaks can have a large effect. Shifting our language changes how we relate to ourselves and the world. By noting that we feel stressed instead of we are stressed, we acknowledge that there is more to us than the emotion or struggle of the moment. We may not believe it, but our words will point us in that direction. By naming our feelings, we begin to process and overcome adversity. A few slips and spills along the road or in the kitchen are downright inevitable. What is not automatic is how we choose to experience and tell the story. Embedded in every proclamation that I'm doing my best is the chance to, well, just keep on trying our best. This usually means calling upon our inner narrator and carefully deciding what our next sentence is to accomplish. When I described the coffee spill out loud, it sounded pretty funny. We laughed, we lightened up. It became easier to try my best. I am always a little weary of sharing these sorts of blunders. My feeling is that when I do so, the Almighty and his infinite love keeps me honest and ensures that I have ample opportunity to practice these written words in my life. So I will not be surprised if I keep spilling things or at least find myself mopping up some life-size messes in my days. But maybe this time I'll remember. It was from the difficult moment itself that my inner tension melted. Had I not endured that spill, I would not have seen the power of my words to shift my reality. And for that, I am grateful. Maybe next time we find ourselves grumbling over life plans gone awry and everyday spills, we'll take the chance to tell a new story. So first of all, I have to tell you that I continue to spill things and break things. 
Uh, anyone who is on my uh, weekly email list knows that recently I think I talked about breaking a glass and cleaning up those glass shards. And then when my husband read this story, he said to me, oh, so like this is, this is part of a context here. This is, this, is, this is not a new thing for you, um, dealing with this. And, and so I think also metaphorically and spiritually and emotionally, this is not new work. And probably for most of us, this is not new work. The, the place that, that can open up for us is when we become aware of how we are talking about it and narrating it for ourselves. And the place of relief is to normalize that struggle. I love the, the concept that Susan David, a, a psychologist um, at Harvard, talks about, which is this shift from I am sad, I am angry, to I am feeling angry, I am feeling sad. And just that, that simple shift of a verb, that simple insertion of a verb creates a world of difference because if I am angry, me and the anger are one. You know, this, this is, this, there is, there's deep enmeshment here. Whereas if I'm feeling that thing, there is still a stable self and there is this experience that I am having. And in that gap, there's some choice now. In Shinui, in the work that I grew up sort of doing that type of, you know, self-work, meditative work, you know, for the last 20 years or so, we used to say, I, I'm not uh, angry, I have anger. And mm -hmm. so it creates like, it, you know, I'm, I'm of, I'm of it, but I'm not in it. Like this, mm -hmm. this idea of creating a space between myself and the experience that allows you to, like you said, look objectively at it. You know, what's the language we can use to allow ourselves to not be fused or like totally immersed in it. So I love that, that new way of thinking about it. Yeah, and when we, when we create a bit of space, one of the wonderful things that happens is we can start to get curious. So this is not usually our default position, right? We usually look at ourselves, our world, our experiences, people around us, and we, we want to fix it, you know? Like, we want to get this done. We know how this should be better. We know what we'd like to be. We often love to shame ourselves, right? Feeling that... that we could do better if only we had, if only we would, if, if, or, or the world could do better if only they listened to us. And so curiosity becomes such an important door opener. And when I'm working with clients, the metaphor that I use, although, uh, you know, it's not working as much these days because uh, I date myself, but when I was training, one of my trainers used this metaphor and it just, it really, or it's not really a metaphor, an example that really stuck for me, which is Columbo. Have we talked about Columbo here? No? Okay, did you watch Columbo? Am I in good I think, company? I think that, that, yeah. was a, that was a show I used to see and then changed the channel. <laughs> oh, well, you should have stuck with it. Let me tell I you. Okay. I was intimidated by the hair and the trench coat. So I, I was never quite sure how to relate to that situation. <laughs> okay, so for me, my childhood, my childhood shows were Columbo, Star Trek, and Quantum Leap. Yeah, Quantum Leap and Star Trek, totally on board. Columbo, I and never... Star Trek, I really am waiting for the holodeck. <laughs> Just, um, yeah, okay. So Columbo was this detective, right? So he had his trench coat, and I think he had a cigar. And he was, his strength, really, his great strength was that he was always a little bit more curious than everyone else. You know, like everyone would, they'd have these, other, I don't know, police officers, the people on scene, they'd gather the evidence and Columbo would just kind of stand there and think and look. And he'd find that 
little discrepancy. He'd find that little place in, and he wasn't rushing for answers. He was willing to be in a process, and he certainly was interested in where this was going to go. Now, to your point, using the Corona Coaster metaphor, how curious can you be where this is going to go? I just want to get off. And so, so this is where, again, a lot of the strategies that we've been talking about over the past number of weeks of kind of bypassing the cognitive tools and really coming into the body to ground ourselves a little bit, to bring ourselves some safety become really important. You know, there is an interesting article I read this week about kids and fort making. So believe it or not, there's actually someone who did his PhD research on forts, I think tree houses and children's spaces or something like that. I, I always love the titles of dissertations because- Yeah, you know, it sounds like my dream thesis. Right? Yes. <laughs> my PhD on tree forts. Amazing. Amazing. Well, and, and then when you read it, you think, well, of course, because forts are children's spaces and are really the first place where kids can gain some control in a space that they don't have control over and how powerful that is and you know there's there's nothing so magical as propping up a few pillows draping a blanket over it crawling in with your flashlight and a book and and having your own world to live in and what this article was talking about was during Corona, how important fort building is and how giving children a safe place where they can feel a measure of control in a world where they have so little is so important. Now, the caveat always when we talk about any healthy tool, right? So, you know, one of the skills I teach is called pushing away. And we say pushing away is creating a wedge between yourself and a stressful circumstance. So, you know, you're in a heated uh, conversation, you say, I need five minutes, you go take a break, you take a breath of fresh air, you push away, right? Or you're stressing about something at night, you say, listen, I'm going to make an appointment with my for tomorrow morning to think about this and I'm gonna have a good night's sleep and 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 rest uh, have breakfast and then revisit this the problem with pushing away is that some people like to push away until the next decade that's not a healthy way to push away so similarly whenever we are teaching a skill we're always thinking about how are we going to use this in a balanced measured healthy way so forts and and personal spaces caves uh, creating some measure of control in our experience is important and also can be overdone. That being said, what, what they were suggesting was that we want to give our kids the opportunity to explore their space, to have a certain measure of control and to create that, that sort of safe cocoon. And what, what it really reminds me of is that more and more what we know is that what what we've been giving kids to help them settle their nervous system, well, adults need also. So weighted blankets, for instance, was something that occupational therapists have been using for quite some time, particularly with children who are emotionally dysregulated, have attentional issues, maybe sensory issues. So we'll put a, a heavy weighted blanket on them and then allow them to do a task. And the the thinking was that that weight helps just down-regulate the nervous system and organize that nervous system in such a way that they can then focus. Well, guess what, folks? One of the top-selling items these days are weighted blankets for adults. 
because it turns out that we also like that feeling of that deep pressure. Now, there are some of you who are listening to this who are like, oh, I just, that sounds awful. And some of you are going, yes, that's why I sleep with three duvets. <laughs> so so not, it's not one size fits all. But one thing for us to think about along this corona coaster and this up and down, along with thinking about the story that we're telling and using some of those cognitive tools is really how are we creating spaces where we feel a little bit of control. And that might be very, very small. Okay, that might be, you know, your drawer in the closet. Some people are sharing a lot of space with a lot of people. And that might be that you're on your own right now and how do you create a space that feels nurturing and nourishing and that you want to be in? I think there, you know, I was speaking to somebody when you say about being in a situation where you can find some modicum or even a sense of control, um, you know, especially for people right now who are in retirement homes who have been told you can't leave the property, mm -hmm. um, you know, and if there's no grass outside of the building, there's really nowhere to go. You're really stuck inside at the behest of both the government and the people who run the building. And I think that it's one of the things that for people who are living in those spaces who used to have tremendous agency in their lives mm -hmm. and suddenly have none or mm -hmm. the feeling of having none. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you recoup a sense of what does it mean to have agency and choice in a situation where you seemingly have very little? Oh, you know, I, I, when you say that, I think about Natan Sharansky, who was imprisoned for many years, a refusenik and in, in, in Soviet Russia, and who talks about the decision he made, I think he said it was on his first day that he would decided that he would not be humiliated by anyone else, that he would only allow himself to be humiliated by himself, that he would not give that power away. Now this is, this is ninja level, right? So this is again, whenever we talk about choosing up and, and you know, I, I just shared in this piece that I'm always humbled when I share this because I know now I'm going to have to live this. So, as we share this, we understand that this, this is difficult and this is doable. You know, uh, life is hard work and it's worth it. And that is ultimately the foundation that we stand on here, which is that most of this is not easy. And yet that doesn't mean that we have actually lost those most important places of choice. So, so to, to recommit ourselves to choice means to recommit ourselves to finding those places where we have choice. And ultimately, you know, so much of that choice, again, lies in how we look at what we're experiencing. You know, I, one of the things that we are dealing with a lot now is anxiety, right? So, and actually what I have seen in the past week or so is people becoming more uneasy as there are shifting protocols, as some of the restrictions are being lifted. You know, I actually, I went for a drive downtown this week and uh, we went late at night and we were just, you know, the streets were empty and we were going to go see the CN Tower and just kind of see the city. And I experienced a total sensory overload. 
it was it was very overwhelming to suddenly have all of this these lights and cars and sensory input and so in many ways we've been really uh, sensitized right now as well and so at many levels people are kind of picking up on the noise level increasing and feeling a little bit wobbly. Uh, there's been a lot of messaging around social distancing, so, but now maybe it's okay to, to be out a little bit more and what does that mean and what are they opening and, and, and so, so much moving information right now. And, 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 then, and then there's the story we tell about the experience and what we make that mean. And so what I mean is that, you know, it's very normal to experience anxiety we will have doubts and fears and dis-ease. What, what still remains within our control, if we're talking about kind of where our choice point is, is the story that we tell about that anxiety. So do we feel that fear and we think, again, kind of to the beginning of our conversation, oh no, something is terribly wrong here. Now I'm having this anxiety again, or, or now my anxiety is amping up and, and it's always going to feel this way. And you know, even as I'm, I'm kind of, acting out this story with you now, Ellie, I can feel that change in my body. Whereas what would it be like to tell a different kind of story about that anxiety? And that's, that's again, when we think about this divine gift that we have of Bechira, of choice, and we think about the importance of naming, this is, this is the work of Adam Arishon. This is the work of the first human being who is given the job of identifying and naming the animals and seeing this in the world, and then to experience that sort of animal inside and to be able to give it a name. And again, when we, when we give it that name, we, we wedge, we drive a little bit of a wedge there. Now, when we come to the anxiety, uh, I told that I, I want to, suggest and maybe again as, as we read that story we were talking about you know narrating this play-by-play -play and bringing some fun to it and bringing some playfulness to it so one of the strategies that that i work with with myself and with clients is thinking about different thoughts which is different than better thoughts okay or nicer thoughts or more positive thoughts which can be really hard so you know if i were to say to you right now ellie you know you're feeling kind of anxious, but like, really, there's probably no reason to be anxious. Everything is going to be good. And how much of that do you believe? Uh, not much, because it just sort of negates my experience in the moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, isn't it a good thing that that's not the strategy that we're going with? <laughs> so, so what we might do, though, is to find a different thought, and this is kind of where we get our Columbo on, which is to be really curious, like, is there another way that we could talk about this experience? So I will give you an example from my life, and, and then we can kind of, you can think about how you might map this onto anxiety or whatever you are struggling with, which is that... Um, Sometimes there's a mess here. So like, it's very nice that I have my uh, camera here. And can I tell you that there are things on the other side of this screen that are not in as much order as this. And, and that at times, you know, is not so pleasant for me. And I can have all sorts of thoughts about that. And you can insert your script that, that would go there, those thoughts. But I've, so, so you know, one of the, the sort of positive thoughts that goes with a home with a mess is, Maybe, you know, well, what a blessing, right? This is a sign of blessing. Now, to me, that is just very positive. 
And when I wish that, you know, there would be a maid with wings and a magic wand, saying that this is a sign of blessing maybe takes the edge off, but it doesn't bring me into the kind of space that I want to be in, right? It does, it's not the kind of thought that actually is gonna help me feel more connected, more able to move forward in, in the space in a calmer, uh, more hopeful way. So the thought that I've been working with, and I, you know, if, if you have some mess around you, you can take this if it helps you, is I love that I live in a space where we are all in process. Because I really do love that. Like that one works for me. Yes, it's a blessing. And yes, it's not the end of the world. And no, there is no cleanup fairy with wings and a magic wand. But I really can love being in a space where it's okay to be in a process. So do you see how that's different, how that's a different thought rather than a better thought or a more positive thought? And when we can get creative, when we can have a little bit more of that cognitive flexibility, then we can begin to shift the story, which opens up some choice, right? So, so if we go to maybe some, some anxiety, we might think, okay, so I'm having some anxiety now. What else can I think about this? You know, um, I have one client who talks about loving that she is a very sensitive person and she's an artist. So this helps her express herself in other ways. Ah, okay. And, and it doesn't make the anxiety go away a hundred percent. What it does is it sort of shifts where we're sitting, right? It's like kind of sitting in a room and picking up your chair and moving it closer to the window where there's a bit more of a view and there's a bit more of a perspective and you're just, you're just sitting in a little bit of a different place. So if we think about some of the maybe shifting uh, experiences, some of the increasing anxiety at this time as we are hurtling ahead, rising uncertainty maybe for some people, uh, maybe just increased anxiety with some of the shifts or fatigue, or, or maybe today's a hopeful day. Uh, and and grab, grab onto that, but just to, to bring some awareness to how we might play around with some different Are you there, Ellie? I'm hearing yeah. some. Sorry, yeah, I was just, I think somebody's mute just popped off, so we're okay. All right. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I think also that um, it's about building a tool belt as well, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the this is like one of the tools in your belt is naming and then changing your orientation around how you're relating with that particular feeling. Mm -hmm. And But sometimes it's just simply like, okay, I just have to lie on the floor for an hour. You know, or I have to go out for a walk or I have to eat something because I'm actually hungry or I have to get some rest because I'm actually tired. Like, and I think I love what I love about what you're saying is you're just providing, you know, a new tool sort of each time to put into the belt. Um, because sometimes, you know, a different feel or a different experience requires a different tool. Yeah. And in DBT and dialectical behavior therapy, one of the things we say is some of the skills work some of the time for some people. <laughs> you know, how's that for a sales pitch? You know, it's not like three easy tools, $9.99 a month, and you'll be amazing. No, you know, some of the skills work some of the time for some people, which means that we each need to continually show up, continually try them out, continually workshop, learn, regroup, try again. And I think that's a much more realistic idea related to if you're going to talk about look, Western medicine, same type of thing, right? What works for one person doesn't work for another person, even though everybody 
you know, technically gets the same treatment. Um, you know, you, we see this a lot with uh, medications. Sometimes you have to try three or four medications before you find the one that's the most effective for you. Um, and I think so, you know, to think that there's going to be some magic solution for every situation um, is, I think, where, where we tend to get caught. And I hear this a lot from different people that I speak to. I just want one thing that's going to change it all. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and then you're stuck when you, when it's not one thing, it's actually a process. Like you said, that it's a process of things. Sometimes this is the thing you need. Sometimes that's the thing you need. Um, but the, the idea that you're pointing to that I love is choice. If you have choices, then you can try to figure out what is it for this moment that's needed and that will actually make the difference. I'm still waiting for my magic wand. <laughs> As soon as I find one, I'm sending you one too. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> All right. What should we walk away with today? What are some of the choosing up pieces that everybody should uh, should take with them into Shabbat? So, so let's let's have some some ideas that connect last week and what's coming up next week, which is Shavuot, which is the festival that we have been counting towards since Pesach, since Passover, and waiting to receive the Torah, waiting to receive God's guidebook of wisdom, of guidance, of all all the the really framework that we need to live our best lives here. So last week we spoke about choosing up and we, we had this, this challenge, which was based on a story that my Zadie used to say, or, or a teaching, which he, he used to say, you know, don't sit by a mirror. mirror. If you sit by a mirror, you only see yourself. You should sit by a window because if you see, sit by a window, you'll see an old person walking by, maybe a blind person, a sick person, and you'll be able to go out and help them. So our charge for the week, our choosing up directive was to sit by our metaphorical windows. So every day to find a creative way to see, to find someone with some kind of a need and to do our best to fill it. So I had a lot of fun with this one this week. I don't know if anyone at the end wants to comment or to share to, to let us know kind of where that one went. So I, I was thinking about this and I heard someone talking about some incredible projects that, that she was involved with and she, she talked about the importance of tikkun olam. And she talked about, you know, really like it's all about tikkun olam. And I thought about this and I thought, well, it, it's all about tikkun olam. It's all about repairing the world and it's also not all about tikkun olam. And so I, for, for all of us who love this concept, don't worry, fasten your seatbelts. Like we can still do wonderful, amazing things in the world. This is still our calling. And let's understand why that is the case. And that's really connected to Shavuot and to a, a interesting piece in the Torah in actually last week's Parsha, Parsha Bahar. So there we have an outline of the laws of Shemitah, which are the laws of the sabbatical year. They're actually like agricultural laws that we here in Toronto in non-temple uh, times do not feel particularly connected to, 
but we are going to feel, God willing, very connected to them in a few minutes. So let me tell you why. So there's a classic question that's asked there, which is that it says that Shemitah is given at Har Sinai, that these laws are given on Mount Sinai, right? Where we receive the Torah, right? And this is everything we're going to be celebrating next week, receiving the Torah, standing together at Mount Sinai, receiving all of this wisdom. And so the question that's asked by Rashi there, our go-to commentator, is why is there this connection between Shemitah and Harsinai? Like, why, why is this coming here? And so the answer that's given is that just as all of the laws, the particularities, the this and the that, the how it ought to be done and turn right and turn left and, and kind of how to live this of Shemitah is given at Harsinai, so too all of the other details and particulars of all the other mitzvot, of all the other connectors between us and the Almighty and how we need to live here are given at Harsinai. I love Rabbi Emanuel Bernstein, who has a, um, a, a Parsha uh, teaching that he sends out, asks a, a beautiful and important question here, kind of if you think about that Colombo cap, right? Okay, so that's a good answer, Rashi. But the question he brings up is, okay, if that's the case, why Shemitah as the example? Why is that going to be the prototype to tell us that all the other mitzvahs with all their particulars come here? And so he answers it really beautifully. And he says, you know, we want to remember that there are basically two kinds of mitzvahs, right? So remember we said tikkun olam. So tikkun olam is really the mitzvah category, the mitzvah family of bein adam l'chaveiro, between one human being and another. There's also another category, and that is bein adam l'makom, between God and human beings. Now, what's the deal with Shemitah? So Shemitah actually has two elements to it. There is one element, one aspect of Shemitah, which is that we don't work the land. It's a Shabbos for the land. So we all, so each of us have a mini Shemitah every week. We have a day where we stop our working, where we stop our creativity, where we say there's someone who runs the world and actually it's not me. And for anyone who likes to accomplish a lot or who likes a feeling of control, right? We talked about our forts and our control and all of that. Shabbos is the day where we go, okay, actually like, not running the show. I'm, I, I love getting on a plane. I, I don't know if I will love getting on a plane post-COVID. That, that's probably going to be a very different experience. But one of the reasons I love being on a plane is that I don't get worried about flying the plane. I am not confused. I do not think I am the pilot. Right? I, I know some people are afraid of flying. For me, for whatever reason, there is that cognitive place of click on the seatbelt, like, okay, you got me, go, like, fly, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll do my little part, and that's enough, and that's really, like, the Shabbos experience is we let go, we say, okay, you know, like, I, I am not running this show, this, this wisdom and directive for how we're going to live in this world are two aspects, my relationship with God and my relationship with you, and my relationship with you the way that I look out that window, the way that I stretch myself to connect and to give is because of my relationship with the Almighty. You know, there's a, a fascinating and beautiful episode in the Torah where Avraham is having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got a call and God was like, okay, listen, Yolanda, it's just me and you, five minutes, I'm going to tell you everything. And someone knocked at my door and was like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? I'd be like, just wait. But Avraham says, okay, God, just wait, God, like someone here, God, God feed these guests. And the Torah tells us that it is actually an expression of his relationship to God. 
It is an expression of his awareness of his obligation to the Almighty that he goes and takes care of fellow human beings. Well, they're not actually human beings. They're malachim, they're angels, but we're not sure if, 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 um, if Abraham knows that in that moment. So, so what's this for us? So, so again, we are not getting that, that phone call like this, right? We are not uh, farmers, but we are human beings. And that's who the Torah was made for. Human beings who are going to have to live in this world and do a lot of ben adam l'chavero, dealing with a lot of people, some of them, you know, easy, some of them relationships that that we're excited to show up to, some that are more challenging. But when we have this consciousness that, oh, like all of this is actually a gift. All of this is being piloted by the best pilot, the Almighty, then it's a lot easier to kind of uh, do some of the work of being with those fellow passengers to like mix a whole bunch of metaphors there, Ellie. So, so this is an important, perspective for us going into Shavuot, a time that we, we learn actually about chesed, we learn about loving kindness, which is very much connected to this concept of tikkun olam. So if we come back to the statement, it's all about tikkun olam. Well, it is and it isn't. It is because it's what the Almighty wants us to be doing. It is because the Almighty put us in this world with gifts and resources and challenges and to the degree to which we can have clarity about that, you know, I, I don't want to restrict it to a vertical relationship because God is not up there, you know, as we know in the nursery song, right? Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. But to the degree to which we can get clear about that main Adam Lamakum relationship, that I am being sustained by God, that I am here with a divine mission, that I have a spark of the divine within me, and then from that place I move into that giving relationship then we are really taking every mitzvah and, and finding those aspects, finding the, that, that place of connection. And that's why Shemitah becomes the prototypical mitzvah. And so if we're going to have you know, a, a choosing up message for us this week, I wanna say as follows that to take the mitzvahs and to live in a holy way is to be God-like. God is constantly bestowing. God is constantly giving. And therefore, we want to figure out how we can give and how we can bestow, which means we need to figure out what our strengths are and what our resources are. And this is a, an important one because our strengths and our resources may be very different right now than they used to be. We might have loved hosting and we can't host. We may have enjoyed giving tzedakah and we don't have as much financial needs, right? There, there may have been ways that we had been accustomed to seeing ourselves as those givers, as those tikkun olam or chesed people, and it's changing right now. And so if we might invoke Colombo one last time today, the, the choosing up charge is to get curious and interested about what your strengths and resources are right now, which means what are your God-given gifts? and to, to find a way to share those. So whereas last week was looking out into the world and seeing what the need was and, and getting creative there, now we're looking inside. We're looking deep inside to be curious about what we have to give, what we have to share, 
and then finding the places or the people who can receive that, which is, you know, a whole other piece of work. Uh, so we'll have two weeks to do that. Right? Next week, we are going to actually be in, in Shavuot on Friday morning. So I will be thinking of all of you. I'll be missing you. I, I uh, have some major baking ahead in the coming days. I'm pretty excited. Um, so questions, are there questions? We can't hear you, Ellie. I have a question. Hi, Karen. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Well, well first of all, as always, thank you so much for um, doing this and teaching us, uh, as always. Um, well, how, how do you uh, get to know what your strengths and resources are right now? That, like, I, I sometimes struggle with that. Like, uh, if it's not obvious, you know, so many times it's not very obvious. Like, how do you get to that point? How, how do I start maybe the, the process of being curious to, to get to that point? I, I, I'm struggling with that. I think it's a really good question. So, you know, one of the, there are different ways that we can do this. Certainly one of the things we have been talking about a lot during Corona is this going inward, spending time, really getting to know ourselves, contemplating. There are different tools and strategies we can use. Some people find writing very effective. I'm excited to hear, Ellie, that you are going to be having a writing workshop. So journaling sometimes can be an effective way, just beginning to be curious. But also if you become a detective throughout your day, I find often if you can figure out where you get even a little bit of energy in your day, what gives you a little bit of a feeling of connection or pleasure is often actually where your strengths lie. Um, so so if, if you enjoy chatting with a friend, well, maybe you're a good listener or maybe you're a good connector. You know, um, if you have fun baking, then okay, like maybe that's kind of your thing. And so that's one way. And I would say it would be, be just, just to get like getting super curious. If you begin to study your day and you begin to study where you feel energized, where you feel excited, where you get maybe some positive feedback, uh, that will be a really great way of, of collecting that information. Another way is to do sort of informal interviews. Uh, be careful who you interview. <laughs> but if you feel that there are some reliable kind of allies in your life, that can sometimes be a really interesting place to get feedback. You know, how do you see my strengths? What, what do you give to me? I know that um, recently I was talking with a friend and I, I said to her, you know, like, you should be a compassion coach. You're, you're, you're so compassionate. And, and, and until we had named it that way, she hadn't quite crystallized that that was a strength she had. And that was something she enjoyed bringing to the world. So, you know, it doesn't, looking for your strengths doesn't mean figuring out that you know you are going to be the world's number one um i don't know for some reason rower came into mind but i don't think that's what we're looking for right now but it doesn't mean that you have to be the best or the most right a compassion coach someone with a soft heart someone who who knows how to laugh at somebody else's jokes. Like we all like someone laughing at our jokes, right? So looking for strengths and looking for things that you can share with other people is also learning how to look at subtleties and looking at the small stuff. Does that answer, Karen? Yeah? Okay. We'll get yes, you a trench Thank you so much. <laughs> Are there more questions? I can lip read you, Ellie, but I can't hear you. I know, I'm, I'm testing you. 
I think there was one more question, I believe, from maybe Leah about, um, she's asking, how do we find a balance in focusing on the relationship between ourselves and God and not allowing our minds to wonder why things happen the way they do? So that's a big, like, both theological question, but it also seems like she's maybe wondering more on a practical level, which is a great question for Shavuot. Like, we're coming up to this time where we get the outline of our relationship with Hashem. Um, you know, how do we put that together with um, some of the challenges in realizing that things aren't the way that we want them to be? That is a really big question. So let's, let's answer what we can and leave it with a teaser, which is that we can't answer all of it. So I think part of what, what is being asked there is a little bit, you know, how do we deal with, with the questions around why bad things happen to good people, why we suffer, um, you know, really important questions. How do we not get distracted by that? So, so you know, I'll, I'll say like this, which is that the most important mitzvah is the mitzvah that is right in front of you. And so often we get distracted by thoughts of not what's right in front of us, but actually what's coming up or what just happened. And we spend a lot of time, you know, either in the past or the future. And so I would say that the, the best way to not get distracted is to try to work on being present in the moment. And, and that, again, might mean seeing who is in front of you, if no one's in front of you and you need to reach out doing so, but really finding ways to be awake to the present moment. And when we are distracted, we use our skills, which is naming it. Hey, I got distracted. Like I'm human. That's awesome. I noticed that. And becoming these experts at noticing when we are getting kind of caught up in, in the kind of brambles of, of that distraction, of that worry, not to say that we don't spend time pondering and delving into the depths of these questions, but if the question is how not to be distracted, it is really to work on cultivating that present moment awareness and presence. And you will be surprised what opportunities are really right in front of you. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to join our live Zoom each week, Go to myjfi.com slash register to sign up for our Zoom session on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would also love to hear your choosing up stories and moments. Please send us an email and let us know more at ellie at myjfi.com. To learn more about Alana Kendall, her book, and her work, go to her website, alanakendall.com. Until next week, let's find our way to choose up.